My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio with me, former U.S. Marine and retired sergeant with the NYPD Intelligence Division. With more than 20 years in the NYPD, this guest earned the respect of his peers and was known as one of the top interrogators on the force, skillfully extracting intel from the toughest criminals in New York before calling it a career in 2006. But that's not where our story ends. In October 2007, he was recruited by the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, a government agency that devised top-secret strategies for combating IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan. As the lead tactical debriefing officer, he participated in over 110 combat missions and 91 captures of high-value targets in southern Iraq, and he performed more than 200 battlefield interrogation. He's with us in the studio tonight to tell us all about it. Let me welcome Chris Strom. What's up, brother? Hey, what's up, brother? How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're here, man. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, you sent me your book, and I, I just can't say enough good things about it, man. This thing is awesome from beginning to end, and it shows so many kind of different worlds that are going on that all mash up for you. But to start it out, I really want to talk about your childhood because I think it's going to lead to some stuff later on uh, in our conversation. But I want to talk about you growing up, uh, your parents getting divorced, and your dad kind of in and out of your life. So if we can start right there, will you just kind of fill us in on that? Yeah, sure, DJ. Um, well, you know, it's not unusual. My parents got divorced when I was about three or four, and uh, I ended up living with my grandparents uh, for the most part of my life. <clears throat> and then my mom remarried. And at that point in time, she decided to marry a guy that had seven kids. Uh, so it was myself and my two sisters, and so now we're 10. And, uh, you know, we're all moving from, uh, you know, the comfort of and, and safety of my grandparents' house to a house with, you know, with, with kids that, uh, you know, unfortunately not through any fault of their own had some, you know, uh, emotional issues. And, um, you know, it's all, we're all being intermingled into one, one space. And um, that marriage failed. And, uh, you know, I ended up going back home and, uh, to Long Island, New York, and living with my grandparents again. At that point in time, I, my grandmother had passed away, so it was just my grandfather. And, um, you know, I was kind of like floundering in life, really. You know, there's, you know, no real male influence. I mean, I did see my father from time to time, but, you know, he had remarried and he had moved to New Jersey. And so, you know, I would see him, you know, once a month, sometimes twice a month, sometimes not at all. It would just depend on what was going on in his life as well. So, um I'm not complaining. I'm not looking for sympathy. It's not the pity parade. Um, I'm just, you know, trying to give you the facts of, you know, what my home life was, was, and in terms of direction and male influence, there really wasn't much of that at all. So when we talk about your dad being in and out of your life, 
was there ever a point where he was telling you like why he was in and out of your life was was it that he didn't get along with your mom was it that he just didn't want to be around was it because this stepdad was around what was it that actually you know kind of put that separation in between you two because later on in the book you're so much of a different father um what was it that 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 was the spark with him that that kind of made that decision for him well i think there was a lot of different things that that came into place um i eventually joined the marine corps and like i said my father was in and out of my life and because i was 17 at the time you know it required my uh, my parents consent my mom was all for it uh and my dad you know was had some reservations about it but eventually he agreed to it as well and um you know, after that, my life had kind of changed because I was no longer a child and I, I still had a lot of maturing to do, obviously, in life. But I was, you know, pretty much on my own and making my own decisions. So the relationship, you know, with my father at that point in time and even with my mother uh, ha had really changed. The view of my, myself, how I viewed myself and how they viewed me, I'm sure, changed as well. And um, so the relationship actually got better because it now it was more of an adult relationship. Um, and I, you know, it's not that I didn't love my parents, but there was, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of emotion all rolled up into, uh, into the family dynamic. Yeah. And, and you talk about that whenever you, I mean, you specifically say, right. When you talk about the stepdad coming in, you were like, that was a disaster with the other seven children. Um, not ever having that male role model in your life, though, it didn't really deter you. Yeah, you rumbled around a little bit when you were a teenager, but you you, you kind of figured out, hey, man, I got to get out of here. Nothing good is going to happen. So you go into the Marines and you leave for uh, boot camp like four days after you graduate from high school. So you knew, look, if I stay around, I'm just going to repeat this cycle. I need to get my head on straight and kind of get out there. Do you know what it was that was driving you? Was it just you didn't want to end up like that? Or what What was it? You know, I think it was a combination of things. One, um, I think I was angry about a lot of things. I, I didn't find this out until much later on in life. And, um, and I knew, like, as you had already mentioned, that I had to do something. Otherwise, it was, it was going to be like a bad movie. And I knew the, how it was going to end. And... Um, I used to go to this one particular shopping mall and I would see these guys, meaning the Marines, out in front of the recruiting station. And and there was always a mystique about them that, you know, from movies and, and things on television. And I said, you know, that's something I really want to do. And I wanted to challenge myself uh, physically and also mentally to say, I'm tough enough. I can do this. Uh, and I really, really wanted to commit myself to it. And I was running and, you know, doing all the preparation I could before, you know, get, you know, actually taking that, you know, plane ride down to Paris Island, South Carolina. And, um, you know, thank God I did do that because that has really been the basis for a lot of things in my life. Uh, when things get tough, I look back at that and realize you want to feel sorry for yourself or do you want to do something for yourself? And um, I realized that if you work hard enough at anything in life, anything is possible. Anything is possible. Uh, an interesting point to your high school years uh, that that you point out in the book, you say, you know, I wasn't that great in school, not because you weren't smart enough or anything. You are a pretty smart guy, though. I mean, and, and I don't just say that in doing what you did, whether that be in the NYPD with the intelligence or going over to the Middle East and working, you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to know what's going on. You have to be able to read people. You're you're not 
anything that that would anyone would consider that you don't know what you're doing. So I wonder, was that part of the thing that you're talking about where you were angry about stuff and you just couldn't figure out like where your place was? I, you know, I, I, I think that's part of it. I was, in, you know, in search of myself. I really, um, because, you know, I had two other sisters that were living in the house with me at the time. And, you know, I kind of looked at it like there's a little bit of onus on me that I like, kind of man up, as they say. I hate to use that expression, but that's the, that's the one I use and that's the one I'm comfortable using. And I, I just felt like if I could do something, I would feel better about myself. And I did. I actually felt much better about myself. My confidence level grew. Uh, because of the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps really honestly it saved it saved my life because as you mentioned earlier you know I was going down the wrong road I was going to get in trouble it was only a matter of time and um, you know when when you're left home by yourself to do your own homework uh, which I was so lazy I didn't want to do it most of the time and most of the time I didn't do it uh, it's not that I didn't go to school I did go to school it wasn't someone that cut class or cut you know got on the bus and waved goodbye to my mom and then, you know, got right back <laughs> off at the next stop. It wasn't anything right. like that, but I just, you know, I really didn't, I just had no desire and I'm looking around and uh, just for some context, you know, the town that I was living in, you know, people were very affluent. Um, you know, they had very steady, you know, home lives and things like that. And I kind of viewed myself as an outcast in, in some respects, socially, not, um, not as a bad person morally, just, I just, I, I didn't fit in. And, you know, the, everybody else was going through life pretty happy and, you know, not, not worrying about, um, you know, what, where their next meal was going to come from or something like that. And that was, a you know, that's a comfort for them and that's a plus for them, but it was very unsteady at certain times in my life with my mom. And, and it, I, as I say, my father was, you know, there from time to time, but not often enough as it turns out. So. Have you ever had a discussion with him like later on in life as as you become the man that you are and everything that you've done and everywhere that you've been? Have you ever, uh, you know, talked to him about that and growing up? I, I, I talked to a guy last week where his son actually followed him on his last reporting assignment to, to ask him, like, why were you gone all the time? Why did you choose this? So was there ever a discussion like that to show him like, look, even without you, I turned out as good as I did? I don't think so. I, I think, well, there were different stages of my life where my father wasn't really in it. And then later on after the Marine Corps, he was in it pretty much. And I made the effort after I got married with my wife to, to go visit him. He had since moved to Texas. And um, so I made the effort. He made the effort, too. Um, and, I, you know, but to answer your question directly, I don't think we ever really spoke about that. I, I just think it was always underneath the surface. And, you know, you try to you know, you try to temper all that stuff and kind of push it away because, you know, for the short time that you're going to be together, you don't want to bring up. And maybe I should have right. to answer your question. Also, maybe I should have, but I never really did. I don't think it was ever really discussed. I just think it was one of those things where we're here now. You know, we love each other. You know, we're in each other's lives. And, you know, and let's let the past be in the past. It's amazing to me, though. And, and the reason I talk about that so much is because I look at that tumultuous young life that you had and everything that you went on to do, like you didn't just join the police department, walk a beat and stuff like you, you put yourself out there. First, let's talk about the Marine Corps though. You join, you go four years. Now, of course you're from New York. You've been to New York city, Manhattan, all those things like that. Um, but you see the world, Scandinavia, Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, like you're all over the place. 
uh, courtesy of the U.S. Navy moving you around as a Marine. Um, when you see the world, because I can tell you when I went to basic training and then I started to see the world, I was like, I, I, I came from a very small town. So it kind of blew me away when I see everything that happens and all the kinds of people that are out there and just the different personalities. How did it hit you when you were in? Well, I'll tell you, I was blown away. Um, it was culture shock. Um, as I say, it came from, a, I lived in a very affluent town. I wasn't myself affluent and my family certainly wasn't uh, affluent by any means. Uh, uh, but you know, my whole world was like a five mile radius. I really hadn't ventured much out. I didn't have much interaction because of the demographics of the town with other cultures, Spanish, black, Chinese, Asian, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Indian or, you know, it just was a very small town for the most part. It was very white. Um, so my, my whole experience in terms of other cultures and other ethnicities and even religions uh, was very centrally based on, on my hometown of five miles. So, you know, to get a chance to travel all over the world, as you say, and, you know, meet different people and different, I mean, I was, I was dumbstruck by a lot of it. I was just like, wow, you know, and then different languages and things like that. But, you know, people are people, you know, the same curiosity that you have, or I have when we travel around, you know, a lot of times the, the people that you're visiting, the host nation and the host countries and cities, they have a natural curiosity too. And they want to know who, who you are and what, what's your life all about and things as well. Yeah. And, and when you say that, you know, I remember going to basic and, and I, I had a guy that I went to basic training with that, uh, he didn't wear shoes back home. Like that, that was kind of a new thing to him. He had worn shoes, but he got like one pair a year. So it was a crazy thing. And, and I can only imagine going to all these countries. So you're what, 18, 19 years old, traveling to all these countries, seeing this thing that let's be honest, most people don't see in their entire lifetime. You could live a hundred years and not see the things that you saw being in the Marine Corps. And I, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of set you up for the future and what you did made you not worry about traveling once you retire and taking this job in another country. Is that, is that kind of the focus and what kind of gave you those tent poles to go on? I, I think that's uh, partially true. I think also working in the NYPD and in New York City, I mean, there's a, I mean, just pick a nationality, pick, pick an ethnic group, religion. It, it's all there. And, um, and again, that was a little bit of culture shock for me too, because now that's on a daily basis, this interaction, whereas, you know, you're traveling with the Marine Corps, you're on a ship, you know, maybe you, you, you know, you do a deployment and you cross train with some other, um, host nation, uh, militaries and things like that. And then of course, you know, you get Liberty and you go out, out in town and, you know, probably have a few adult beverages and things like that. So that part, you know, uh, you know, was interesting and it was, you know, I'll never forget it. But then when you get into New York City and now you're dealing with people and I don't have to tell you this because you do it every day and you're still doing it every day. You know, you meet people sometimes at their worst moments. And for the most part, unlike the firemen, they're not really happy to see you, um, you know, if they're at if they're at a downport in their life. And, and moreover, what's been happening lately. And I don't want to get off on a political tangent. You know, the police are getting beat up left and right from 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 top and bottom. It's it's really a tough row to hoe, really. And, and I do actually want to talk to you about that in a minute, but I want to move through your career because I want to show kind of how it's changed since you were there. So you go to Plano, you get out of the Marine Corps, you go to Plano, Texas, you become a police officer. Was there something about that that 
that just didn't fulfill you that that you needed that excitement from the NYPD? Because I mean, you're talking two totally different worlds, especially at the time you went from Plano over to NYPD. What was it about Plano that that taught you? But then what was it about it that made you also kind of leave and decide to go on to greener pastures? Well, I got to tell you, Plano, uh, you know, this is back in 1985. I was there from 85 to 87 was, you know, on the cutting edge of a lot of police development. A lot of, you know, they if there was a shiny object to buy or a Gucci gear or a computer system, you know, they were right on it. They didn't spare any expense. So in terms of they being with do. the modern police department and great training and things like that, I'm not knocking them at all. In fact, today, I they're probably the gold standard in, in terms of other police departments nationally, Texas, certainly they're, you know, very, you know, uh, cutting edge. The problem I was having was when I was there was there's about 140 cops. Um, and then they had, of course, some specialty units. And the, the realization that I was probably going to be 10 years away from getting into any one of these particular units started to set in because, you know, the narcotics unit, those people, unless they got promoted or retired, they weren't leaving. You know, if there was a plain closed unit, I don't even know if they had one, to be quite honest with you, at that particular time, um, with, you know, th the same thing would happen with that. And I knew the NYPD was there if I wanted it. It wasn't that I was keeping it in my back pocket, but they had not closed out my investigation, meaning that it was still what they considered active. And, uh, and I had postponed for two years of going back into the academy. And after about two years, of you know working pretty much either the four to twelve of the midnight shift, um, and then and just for some background for your audience, Plano pretty much ended at Preston Road. Uh, so anything west of Preston Road, except for the Country Club, was pretty much all pasture and and farmland. There was nothing there, and that was one of my sectors. I had a couple sectors, but that was one of them. And uh, so you know you'd go a whole night, maybe getting two or three calls, and it was usually a ringing alarm or maybe a car accident or something like that. And I was proactive there, but I was just like, there's got to be more. There's got to be something more. I just, you know, I can't see myself doing this forever. And that was pretty much the motivation for me to leave. And I didn't leave on bad terms. I want to be clear about that, too. I left because I wanted to leave and rolled right into the uh, academy in New York City. Nobody was asking me to leave. I wasn't being forced out of the department or anything like that. So. Well, and, and like you say, though, back then, now, it definitely doesn't look like that today, um, but I can completely understand that, especially, I think, coming from the Marine Corps and you seeing the world as much as you did in that small four years, then coming there, thinking you're going to be a police officer doing all the police officer things that happen, and then you're answering a call that a cow got out and you're trying to get it back into the field. I absolutely understand. When you go back to the NYPD though, and you test and you go to the Academy and everything right off the bat, that's a change for you because you said, I don't remember how many officers, 140 in Plano at, at the time. Right. I think something like that. Very close to that. Yeah. yeah. So let's compare that to your NYPD Academy class. How many people? 1000 people in the, in the class. <laughs> 1000. So right there. So it's a change, but it's also uh, leading you where you really want to be in the police department. Yeah, when absolutely. you're going through, absolutely. you hear a lot of people in the academies and, and they talk about 
this is what I want to do and this is what I want to be. And they really find out later on after they've been a cop for a while that they don't want to do the things that they said they wanted to do in the academy. Did you always know that you wanted to head down this road as a detective and as an interrogator and things like that? I wouldn't say I wanted to be an interrogator at first because um, to be quite honest with you, in the very beginning, I, I was horrible at it. But I always wanted to do the things I saw in the movies like, you know, chase the guy with a gun and, you know, all that kind of a madness. And, um, and I, and I got to live out my dreams in the NYPD, the things that people do in movies and see, um, I, I got to do that. And courtesy of the NYPD. And that's really what I wanted to do. The investigative part and the interrogation part, that was all part of it, but I really stunk at it in the beginning, but I was very good. Uh, if, and, and I'm not the only one to say this at being a street cop. And I'll, I'll take that as a title over any medal or any uh, accommodation that the department wants to give. If you're identified, and I know you can relate to this, as a street cop, uh, that's the best bona fides you can have, period, anywhere in the NYPD. The guy has his stuff together in one bag, as they would say. He's a street cop. He's ready. What do you think it was about the street there that made you a good street cop? I, you know what? I... I learned from some very good people. I mean, it's there is a learning curve, uh, but I was always curious and nosy. And so once I found something, for example, cars, you know, cars used to be carjacked, cars used to be stolen. Um, I've always been good with cars. In fact, I associate people with cars. And my wife laughs about it to this day. I'll say, oh, that's Mary, and she drives a, a Ford Mustang, and oh, that's Tom, and he's got a he's got a, a, a blue Corvette. And, and she'll be like, how do you remember this? But you can't remember their kid's name. I'm like, I know that's just how my mind works. Um, so I was great with cars. So from that, I kind of got pushed into the investigative part because it wasn't enough to just find somebody driving a stolen car or thinking that there was some kind of, you know, uh, something unusual about the person driving a car or, or the way they were driving the car. There, that wasn't enough. After you made the arrest, you had to do some, you know, you had to build a case against this person. Well, was this person just a, a guy that, you know, was a valet and stole the car from a parking lot? Or is he part of an organized crime ring that goes out and jacks cars, pops locks and things like that? So that's kind of where I went initially as I just want to arrest the guy and be done with it to now I have to learn how to communicate and listen to people, you know, better. And, 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 and by virtue of that, got better at, at interrogation. When you go over into the investigative, you mention it a lot about your time in the Middle East uh, when you're working there. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that you're really not fond of over there while you're working. And you said that it was different than being in the NYPD. But my question to you would be, there's a lot of bureaucracy in, in police work, whether that be coming down from city council. And especially, like you said, even more today. What were the things that kind of stood in your way as an investigator back in the 90s as compared to when you were in the Middle East? Because I think that sometimes we tend to kind of brush over the bad stuff in the job and just look at the good stuff. Uh, and, and I think that is partially to keep you sane and all those different kinds of things. But what was it about the bureaucracy back then? Because I wasn't quite one yet. I was out of school, getting ready to join the military and things like that. So what was it different about in the 90s? Well, in the 90s, I mean, the crack was raging and um, there was all kinds of violent street crime. I mean, 
it was citywide. It's really kind of emblematic of what's going on today, actually, uh, unfortunately, uh, except that crack doesn't seem to be the motivator, it just seems to be more like opportunity more than anything. Um, some of the bureaucracy, obviously, you know, from a law enforcement standard is you have to have probable cause and you need to, you know, develop a, enough information that you can actually get a search warrant to kind of continue on with the investigation. So, you know, that could be frustrating depending on what your level of understanding is, your relationship with the, with the district attorney's office. And, and, it, and that's another thing. There's five boroughs within New York City proper. So, you know, if you're in a, in a borough and now, and I worked in Queens for 12 years, and now suddenly you're getting transferred from Queens into Brooklyn, well, that relationship that you may or may not have had in Queens, you're starting all over because it's like nobody cares what you did over in Queens. You're in, you're in Brooklyn now, you know, that kind of a thing. In Iraq, uh, the bureaucracy uh, is more on the corruption side and the cover-up side. So obviously if there's corruption within the police department, I don't care what police department is, there's always some oversight. There's always some, I think they call it professional standards in New York City, they call it internal affairs. And um, the oversight in the NYPD is um, very aggressive. Uh, they spend a lot of money to look for bad cops. Um, believe it or not, there's a, a, a tremendous unit, second to probably the intelligence division and maybe, and maybe the narcotics bureau the internal affairs is the most heavily funded department within the NYPD. So they fire a lot of cops. Uh, when I say they fire a lot of cops, depending on the year, it, they lose anywhere from 50 to 75 cops that are just outright fired. And of those 50 to 75 that might be fired, probably 25% of them end up in jail. So it's not even like, you know, they, so that's on the, on the police department side. When you get over into Iraq, now you have people that are having career aspirations that they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to do anything that's going to avoid them from staying on their career track to get the, the eagle, to get promoted to colonel. If you're, if, if you're a lieutenant colonel or if you're a colonel, you want to get the star. And if you're in Iraq and somebody's making waves or they're upsetting something that is making you uncomfortable or, in the case of Iraq, making you look like you're an incompetent leader, well, that's the bureaucracy that I faced with the team. And when I say the team, I mean just that, the team. I didn't solve the problems over in Iraq singularly. I worked with a team of very uh, dedicated, super smart people. And, and because of that, and because of how good the team was, we were confronted with that on a regular basis. Going back to the 90s in, in New York, what kind of change do you see? And I always like to ask the NYPD guys this. What do you see changing from the 90s? Because I believe, and, and I've said it a ton of times, 9-11 uh, changed everything. It changed the focus of law enforcement. It changed kind of the job of law enforcement, and especially in New York. So I want to talk about September 11th with you, but I want to talk about specifically uh, – on September 11th, that you actually saw the plane come over the top of you before it hit the building. Is that correct? That's correct. I didn't see the first plane. The first plane had already struck. Um, I was getting coffee, and I turned down uh, Atlantic Avenue heading west. And just for your audience's uh, uh, information, Atlantic Avenue it dead ends at the East River. <clears throat> and then it similarly, if you're going east, it runs all the way out into Long Island, into Nassau County. So that was my northern border, Atlantic Avenue. So if you made a left onto Atlantic Avenue and headed west, you're looking at the 
Staten Island Ferry Terminal. You're looking at what was then the Trade Center. You're looking at Battery Park City. So, and then just to your right, a little bit further north is the Brooklyn Bridge. So to give some people some context and perspective. <clears throat> so as I'm coming down Atlantic Avenue, I see the tower is on fire. I have my police radio on and it's going absolutely insane. Uh, I switch over to what they call SOD, Special Operations Division. And now I'm able to hear more, more finely what is going on and that a plane had struck the tower. So I get on the phone and I call my wife and she's like, yeah, I'm watching it now. She worked in a hospital in Queens. And, um, and with that, the second plane crossed, crossed right up like above, almost like above my head and smashed into this, into the, uh, South tower. I, I just got to ask what's going through your mind because everyone knows whether you were in the military, whether you were law enforcement, then I would think even some civilians know when a second plane strikes, there's something wrong. That just does not happen. The the astronomical number of that happening, I got to understand what's going through your brain because unlike a lot of people, you're there literally at ground zero. Yeah, I, I knew immediately what it was. Um, you know, it's you want to think you want to think that the first plane, because, again, I didn't see the first plane. I didn't know if it was a big plane or a small plane. I mean, I could see the tower and the smoke and the debris is actually because of the uh, jet stream. It's it's all landing on over in Brooklyn, uh, you know, coming right across the East River. But I knew then and everybody else knew then. And I was just you're in shock, uh, obviously, momentarily. You're trying to process it. I, you know, I basically told my wife, I said, I, I got to go. And then you're basically on autopilot after that, because you're like, well, what do I got to do? Where do I got to go? And, you know, New York City is has not is not new to being attacked. I mean, there was the World Trade Center bombing in 93, um, but that paled in comparison to what was going on right now. Both towers are on fire. You know, it's going to be a mass casualty incident. How are we going to get these people out of the building? Where do I go? Obviously, we can't all go to New York City as much as we would like to. Um, so, you know, you have to wait, you know, for leadership to start making some decisions. For me, because of where I was in proximity, uh, in the precinct, which is the 76 precinct, which I was working in at the time, they have what's called the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. So that tunnel connects Brooklyn to lower Manhattan. So if you go from Brooklyn into Manhattan, when you come up, you're right there in front, you're looking directly at the World Trade Center when you come up. That's how it used to be. It's not like that anymore, unfortunately. So the, the the ability to get in and out of the city now is being compromised because of this huge explosion with the two trade centers on. And so now that has to that problem has to be rectified. How do we how do we fix that problem? And believe it or not, on their own, tow truck drivers just started showing up and started saying, "Hey, do you want me to tow these vehicles out?" Because we couldn't even get fire equipment in there now because People are literally trapped inside the tunnel. And at the end of each uh, side of the tunnel are these huge, huge, massive, the size of houses, ventilation fans that basically suck out the exhaust fumes and keep recirculating fresh air, you know, into the tunnel. So, so people don't, you know, uh, get exposed to carbon monoxide from the exhaust. Well, because those fans didn't shut down and now the, the tower had collapsed, these people are coming out like a scene from Dawn of the Dead, where they're completely covered in ash and, and dust. And, and basically, all you could see is like their eyes and their nostrils and their mouth uh, of their face. Everything else is just completely awash in ash. 
when you see all of this and, and you see what's happening, you see that you're not able to get over there. You're not really able to do anything. It's hard to get to where you're going. So there's a helpless feeling that goes inside you. Like you want to do whatever you can. So what immediately does the seven, six go into? Because I know that you were stationed at a couple different places over like a three day period. Uh, what is the seven, six and what do the other precincts uh, just so we all know go into effect? Well, for me, uh, it, while I was in the seven, six, I basically, we set up a triage area on, on the Brooklyn side of the battery tunnel. Uh, we had ambulance people there and we were basically, I mean, I mean, it was, it, it was like a mass exodus. People were walking out. Some people chose to walk in and then they started walking up on, uh, on the uh, FDR drive toward the Brooklyn bridge to, to escape New York. It just depended. But for us, we were triaging people and we were trying to get a lane cleared. And then eventually we did get the lane cleared and fire apparatuses and things like that could get in there and get to ground zero. But you have to understand the building hadn't completely collapsed yet, you know, so we have these two buildings that are on fire and we have all this other madness going on. We're, we're trying to clear a lane. And at some point in time, the building does collapse. So now it's, a, you know, now it's even worse if if the traffic was even snarled or even congested even more. Now it's even worse because now everybody is just abandoning their vehicles everywhere, not just within the tunnel, but on all the other roadways. So even if we had cleared the lane, now the ability for the fire apparatuses and, and emergency vehicles to get close enough to ground zero is being blocked because of the same problem that was happening in the tunnel. So it's 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 constantly changing and evolving and eventually, you know, things kind of settle down. But for the most part, people just I mean, I can remember when I finally got to ground zero. One of the craziest macabre scenes I saw was there were baby strollers that were just abandoned, um, you know, because it's really, really and even now, because it's been rebuilt up, it's beautiful to walk around there, Battery Park City. It's beautiful. And it was a bright, sunny day. It's actually my daughter's birthday. She turned four that day. And um, But one of the other crazy things that I saw was all the shoes, like ladies' high heel shoes or even, even flat shoes. They basically just kicked off their shoes so that they could run with their baby in their arms. One of the other more uh, interesting or weird things that I saw – was, you know, New York City is known for before they had um, Uber Eats and all these other food delivery services. I mean, New York had that forever. People, the, the only way you can really get around in Manhattan in a timely fashion is by bicycle or bike messenger. And and so these people used to deliver food. Well, all these bicycles, bicycles were scattered all over lower Manhattan, too. They were just abandoned with food in their baskets and things like that. So there was a, a lot of interesting and weird, crazy things that when I think back about it, you're like, I, I get it. I understand it. I, I think I would have done the same thing myself. Yeah. Other than you can't, you have to go towards it. Now in your career so far in NYPD, of course you've worked your patrol, but you've worked the Queens robbery task force. You uh, worked narcotics. So you've never seen a level of terrorism like this, even from being in the military, even from working. Uh, you saw, like we talked about the world trade center in 93 that happened, but you hadn't seen this level of it. And I would say that probably a lot of people working in the NYPD, including those working in the intelligence uh, center, had not seen this level of terrorist activity. Um, can you talk about a little of playing catch up to that situation? Yeah. Well, 
the NYPD had an intelligence division, and um, it, but it did not have a JTTF at the at that point in time. So as a result of 9-11, they, they, they had a JTTF stationed in New York City. In fact, they started spreading them out all over the country. Um, the, the people in the NYPD Intelligence Division, uh, and, and I'm obviously proud of, the, proud of work, having worked there and worked with some of these amazing people, um, what it was when it was being run in terms of the, the counterterrorism strategies, which was by the FBI and, uh, and other federal uh, agencies, and of course, the NYPD was allocating some of the, some of their resources as well. It totally exploded after 9/11. So it went from having roughly 200 to 300 people to over a thousand people. So, but it's not just detectives. It's you know, it's sergeants, it's detectives, it's lieutenants, captains, and so on. And the higher up you go on the tree, the less amount of those people are. Um, so, to give some context for for your audience, the NYPD has 5,000 sergeants. Most police departments don't have 5,000 people. So the, the NYPD runs on what they call a one in eight rule. So in, in theory, there's supposed to be one sergeant for every eight police officers. That's the the, the, the metrics that they use in, in order to maintain like precinct level and all these other special activities that go on within New York City. So when I got into the intelligence division, I was running what they call the counterterrorism leads desk. So there's only four sergeants that did that. And there was only 100 sergeants at that particular time. It's probably changed since then in the NYPD intelligence division. So I'd like to think I was competent in my job. I don't think I got there because of my good looks and uh, sure, certainly not because of my expansive vocabulary. But I think that somebody saw something in me that said that you should you should go there. And um, I worked with some amazing gifted people, super smart people that made me look like a superstar um, and committed. But Working in the intelligence division, um, and some people may have different experiences. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, some of the experiences I had with the federal partners, uh, really, it really sucked. It really sucked. Um, I don't know if that's changed. My understanding is from people that I still speak to that are still there or recently uh, separated from the NYPD, because you have to remember now what's going on. Anyone that's got their time in, with, in terms of being fully vested in their pension has to make a decision. Do I want to stay and hope it gets better? Or do I want, or do I want to leave and, and take my chips and go home? And a lot of people are taking their chips and going home. I, I think that that's in this time frame because we've already talked about it a little bit. I think it's the telling of the times right now why they're grabbing their chips and going home. There, there is not a lot of wins for police officers anymore. Law enforcement, first responders. There's just not. I mean, they are police more than any of the other first responders are really taking a beating within the last three years. Now you mentioned the, the federal agencies. Can you go into that a little bit? What the problems was with the federal agencies, because um, there's a lot of, you know, share, sharing that goes back and forth. There's a lot of leads that go back and forth. What was it that you saw, especially working in an intelligence center where information as we know should be flowing back and forth like a river doesn't always do that. Uh, and and some would even say that's what led to the problems of 9-11 and stuff was there was no information sharing going back and forth. So what was it that you noticed that you're, uh, wasn't that good for you working with those federal partners? Well, like I said, I ran the lead test. So basically anything that came into the city uh, that had a nexus to terrorism, uh, we jumped on it. And But 
it came through the JTTF through a matrix. So they have what they call first right of refusal. So if it came through that an old lady in Brooklyn sitting on her steps notes some suspicious activity, Middle Eastern males driving cabs with New Jersey plates parked, double parked in front of her apartment, you know, probably not sexy enough for somebody in the FBI. Just going to say that. Probably not. <laughs> but in the NYPD, we have an expression and I, you know, uh, and it's and it's true to this day. Uh, you don't solve problems from the computer terminal. You have to leave the desk and you actually go out and have to imagine this. I know this isn't new for you, DJ, but you got to knock on the door and you got to talk to a real life human breathing human being and ask them what it is that they saw. And nine times out of 10, especially, you know, depending on the proximity of when 9-11 is and how much further after 9-11, you know, people have different levels of paranoia and anxiety and things like that. So the closer it was to 9-11, a lot of those calls were really just somebody that was nervous. But at the same time, we investigated each one of those calls with the same intensity and same, same level of scrutiny as we did the ones that were clearly uh, there was a nexus to terrorism. Um, the problem with that would be we have a case. It was initially passed. Nobody wants it. They give it to the NYPD. I'm just giving a, a broad brush on this. We would investigate the case. We actually talked to the old lady with the cats. And lo and behold, there's something more to this investigation. So now we have a case. Do we have to do surveillance? Do we have to uh, do some buys? Do we have to do introductions of confidential informants? Do we need to introduce other human sources? Um, and I'm not going to get into too much detail about that. Right. And the case is up and running. And now it turns out we have a bad guy or we've identified several people we believe are involved in, in, in some terrorist activity. The case, we make an application for the search warrant. So you have to understand, I know you don't have to understand this, but for your audience, every day you're typing what we call a five. So that's basically an addendum to your a rolling diary of what this case looks like, what's going on, where you are in this level of the investigation. Lo and behold, when you go to make application for a search warrant, suddenly your phone, my phone would ring and say, hey, this is detective so-and-so from the JTTF uh, it turns out we have a parallel investigation or we have a subject in common with your investigation and we're taking primacy on the case. So if you think that was just like an occasional occurrence or like once in a blue moon occurrence, uh, I know you don't think that, but for your audience, I just want to be clear that happened quite often, quite often. So again, this isn't the Chris Strom show. I'm not looking for the pats on the back. I'm being compensated. I'm surrounded by beautiful people. But when you have to tell your detective that you got to hand over your case to some other detective because he's working in the JTTF with an FBI agent. And, and oh, by the way, when they do the press conference, you're going to be nowhere to be found. Your name will not be mentioned. Um, and your kids will never know how great and how hard you worked on this case. That's what I have a problem with. And toward the end, after five and a half years of that, it really started to get old. It really, really started to get old. An interesting point that you bring up, though, when you talk about the 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 complaints that come in or the the tips that come in, and it's a little old lady sitting out. Don't you agree, though, that a lot of those tips, uh, a lot of those complaints are lost in translation? And when you actually talk to the person, they make a lot more sense because you'll get complaints in that say uh, there was a guy standing over here. But when you go talk to them, they say there was a guy standing over here 
for seven days in a row at these times. And it, and it changes a lot. And when all of that information starts to bubble up, that's where you have the problem of, oh, well, we might have an interconnected case instead of looking at it first. Was there any way that you could get around that? Because I don't really think that there is. Uh, well, <laughs> I, the, the, the short answer is no. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to just, uh, you know, hand it over. Um, but that causes a lot of problems. Uh, you know, again, the NYPD Intelligence Division, I'll have this conversation with anybody, is bar none the uh, Google repository of all things human on terrorist-related basis. So the amount of volume of work, if you were to take a 1,000 detectives on two shifts seven days a week and say that they have to have 10 contacts, irrespective of what their actual caseload is, uh, you see how fast that that database starts to fill up. Cars, people's places, um, incidences, frequency of, of, of an incident. So another thing, just for your audience's uh, uh, information, there's an NYPD detective and sergeant in every major city around the globe. I don't care if it's in Europe. I don't care if it's in Asia or in the Middle East. Pick a city. There is an NYPD detective and a sergeant, sometimes two, depending on the threat level. And Paris and London are top on the list, unfortunately, for better or for worse. That lives there 24-7, 365 days a year. And they are attached to the actual host nation or host intelligence agency's uh, investigator so that when something happens in London or in Paris, and I'm just using them as examples, they don't stay at the desk. They leave the desk with that intelligence officer of that respective city, and they respond to the scene, and then they call back the fusion cell in New York City proper, and now we're getting our information in real time. And the reason why we did that is because of what you said from the onset of this uh, part about intelligence sharing, and some might think that you know the problems of 9-11 were related to the sharing. It is most definitely, without question, uh, the problem, the root cause of most of these problems. Because at the end of the day, if you're not going to talk to a real person, the computer only gives you so much information. And you pointed that out very accurately. Yeah, the guy's standing on the corner, but he was there for seven days. Oh, and by the way, he had a backpack on. And sometimes he had a friend that he talked to. And, and the friend would go back into a convenience store. Or one day he came out and took pictures with his cell phone. You don't get that from the computer. You only get that from talking to people. And that's why I say I'm going to stand on, on my, my previous statement. The NYPD is the Google repository of all things human intelligence because they realize that they have our stakeholders in the safety of the city, having been attacked twice. And nobody wants to have their name attached to a case where they didn't actually knock on a door or didn't get the name of somebody that they spoke to and then typed it up in their report. Because, again, I know you know this and anybody that's in law enforcement knows this. If it's not on paper, it didn't happen. You could talk about it all you want later on, but no one's going to believe you. And certainly not in the court of law. No one's going to believe you. If you didn't write it down, it did not happen. I would take that even a step further. I think it can be on camera these days. And if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. I agree. Agree. And, that, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the cameras, because I think at one point in time, London had more cameras than any city, London proper in, 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 in the UK. Right. I think New York City has just as many, if not more, at this point in time. There's cameras everywhere, and, and they have a whole fusion cell that is just watching, you know, hot spots around the city in real time, 24-7. It's amazing to me. I had no idea that the NYPD had people stationed all over the world. 
And it, it just goes to show you what kind of, I mean, we, we say it ground zero, but it really is ground zero for everything that's going on in the world. It's a major port of entry. I would say bigger than any other port of entry in the United States, Los Angeles, anything. Um, when you're in the intelligence division and you're seeing this, is it opening up your eyes to a different world? And let me give you an example of what I mean. When you become a cop and you start to see the crime that's happening, it opens up your eyes about the neighborhood maybe that you're in. And then when you start working robberies or homicide or whatever, it opens your eyes to how many of those are going on. So as you start working intelligence, is your brain about to explode out of your head with seeing how much terrorism and how many bad things are being plotted against the United States? Yeah, it was, it was a, uh, that's a great question, DJ. It was an eye opener. Um, it was a learning curve. There's so much nuance to it involved. Again, a lot of the things are communication skills, interview skills and interrogation skills, but there's surveillance. There's a lot of more deep diving uh, that goes on to it. And you have to remember something too. We have the Patriot Act, which still exists and they keep updating it and changing it as, as things evolve. But, you know, for example, at one point in time, you could not be, you know, very close after, soon after rather 9-11, you couldn't videotape or photograph uh, anything in the subway that was illegal. Same thing with the bridges and crosses because they, people in the intelligence world felt that that might be part of what they call pre-operational planning. Somebody was trying to get a lay of the land and they would uh, take pictures so they would be able to orient them for an attack. So a lot of the calls that I would get from the JTTF were just that people taking pictures, tourists. They wanted to take a picture of themselves with the bridge and everything like that. Can we find this person? You know, you have to remember something else now. Just again, for your audience's edification, the guy that was running the intelligence division when I was there was Ray Kelly. And also in, in charge of the intelligence division was a civilian guy by the name of David Cohen. So he was 36 years in the CIA. So when you come from that world. <laughs> and, and didn't and Ray Kelly become expert, the commissioner? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you try and you try and insert your way of doing business, you know, operating in a foreign country and now trying operating now domestically, there's always going to be some rub. And again, this guy didn't want to hear excuses. He wanted you to just fix this problem or find this person. So, you know, and again, I'm one of four people that's running these desks. Each barrel had a desk and then they collapsed it down to three. So I became one of three. Um, you better be on top of your game and you better know how to manage your resources and you better know how to collect information both through databases and human sources. And you better know how to go, go out and collect this stuff and figure it out because he didn't want to hear, well, we couldn't find the guy. What it, well, that's not an answer. I didn't ask you, you know, can you find the guy? I said, find the guy. So that was, that was, that was an eye opener for me because, you know, because of the Patriot Act, you know, these people, sometimes we could identify them because of a license plate or because of the proximity of where they were in front of a store. Maybe there was additional video surveillance of this person taking a picture. Maybe it was posted on social media. And again, the, the challenge for me too was I was never a computer guy. I was always after. So all these things were changing. All the uh, technology was was emerging and I was having to relearn it. Whereas, you know, my kids grew up with this. They're like, dad, are you crazy? You can't attach a picture to an email. I mean, this is how fundamentally challenged I was initially. I got be I've gotten better since, but that's what it was like. 
So you become dependent on some of these people and these resources too. And I had, like I said, some amazing people that were very sharp and very gifted. And thankfully they could run a computer. So a lot of that, that lifting part of the, of the task was, was managed, you know, by these, uh, accomplished rather by some of the folks that work for me. Let's talk about interview and interrogation a little bit, because you mentioned it talking to people and stuff. You would agree that there's a huge difference between an interview and an interrogation. I think so. And I think, but I, but I also want people to understand that um, there's actually a legal definition, which I know, you know, that, you know, the legal definition of an interview is the person can get up and walk out and, he, and he's not under arrest. The interrogation is um, he is under arrest and it, the style could still be very friendly and non-adversarial like an interview. Uh, but the but the legal disclaimer is he's not free to leave. Consequently, in a domestic situation, domestic law enforcement, he doesn't have to talk to you or she doesn't have to talk to you either. They could turn around and just say, I'm invoking my Miranda rights and, you know, this interview is over and they could tell you to go pound sand and you have to walk out of the room. But. To your, to your point about the interrogation, the interrogation is we have probable cause, a person's been arrested, or it might migrate from an interview into an interrogation simply because some of the facts that we were not previously aware of have now been unearthed. And now we realize this guy or this girl is a key player and he was involved, whereas maybe when we first started interviewing this person, we weren't convinced or we didn't have probable cause to exist at that particular point in time that the person was involved in a crime. So I've said all this to say that if people think interrogation is the yelling and screaming and the and the bright lights and <laughs> pounding your fist on the desk and all that stuff, uh, that's part of it. That could be part of it. But I've learned that that technique really is probably a, as a last resort for somebody that's really not skilled at doing interrogations of people. The reason I ask you this question is because what I have noticed is a lot of people don't want to talk. And I'm talking about cops or detectives. They don't want to talk. I'll hear a lot. Uh, when, when someone will say, uh, on the interview, they'll have someone go do the interview because the person's just going to lie to them. That's their job. Of course they're going to lie. Um, and, and when you did that comparing NYPD to the middle East, you know, you're up against a bunch of obstacles. I believe reading your book, starting with the NYPD, because you have to Mirandize, you have to really build a rapport with this person to get them into talking over in the middle East. You don't really have to, you do have to build that rapport, but you're not held by Miranda and all those different things like that. But they, to me, reading your book more easily could say, quite frankly, go fuck yourself and not talk to you. <laughs> so I, I, I want to know what you noticed about the difference between the interviews, because I think that sometimes we don't talk to enough people. We don't gather enough information or spend enough time. We try and get the the answer that we need and we move on when there might be just a little more under the surface. Uh, and I believe that not I'm not even talking about law enforcement. I'm talking about people in general. There's more right underneath the surface right there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, and again, I want to be clear on this as well, uh, DJ. Uh, when I first started this, uh, you know, this business of interview and interrogation, um, I really sucked at it. I wasn't good at it. Um, because I was impatient. Um, I was satisfied that, you know, I arrested this guy. I'm talking about the law enforcement side. And, um, you know, that should be the end of it. And, and honestly, to your point, I, I can't even remember. I, I, I've lost track. Um, how many times somebody would say to me from the cell, 
because generally when in, in, in the NYPD, when you're processing, you're usually within the eyesight or certainly earshot of where the cell is, of where you're doing your initial paperwork. And somebody would say, officer, officer, I got, I, you know, I, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And I'd be like, I put my hand up literally and tell this person, be quiet. I don't want to talk to you. If you have to use the bathroom or you need something to drink or eat, let me know. I said, I'm more than happy to do that. But other than that, I'm not interested in what you have to say. And then they would be emphatic about it. Say, no, you don't understand. I could tell you about this guy or this girl or whatever. Be like, I really don't care. That was the old, you know, small picture, Chris, impatient. Fast forward, you know, I, I get promoted to sergeant. I'm working in narcotics. I'm working with some really smart people. Uh, and their communication skills and, and their listening skills are heads and shoulders above mine. Way, way, way above mine. And I'm like, you know, that's pretty cool. You know, if you're actually nice to people and you and you take the time to listen to what they say and handhold, as we call it, you might be able to get some more information. And there is more information to be gleaned from that. Over in Iraq, similar situation, but what what we're what the the bad guy is experiencing in comparison to the guy that's been arrested is is what they call capture shock. So you know you can imagine. Uh, even in, in the States, for that matter, executing a search warrant at three o'clock in the morning, guns pointing at people, you know, kids crying, you know, women and children and, and all kinds of other madness going on. This is going on in in, in, in Iraq in a, in a very confined area, maybe a two story house, seven or eight people deep. And, you know, three or four of the people are males and the rest are female and small children. Well, you can eliminate the small children and the women right away. And I'm just talking about the interview and listening and all these other things. Well, the benefit you have is that you know you're taking this guy. You're you're taking this guy, and he knows you're taking this guy. You're, you're taking him, rather, or her. Most most of the time, ninety five percent of the time, was a him. So their willingness to want to give you information or tell you about other people to minimize their their culpability and their involvement is greater more often than it would be on the state side, if that makes sense. Because on the state side. They know there's going to be a trial. They know that there's probably, and what's what's been going on lately, maybe no bail for depending on what this person is done. So they they need they need they realize their uh, their whole world is about 24 hours to 48 hours of misery. Whereas this other person, his life is going to be miserable and forever be changed in Iraq. So the ability to use that kind of psychological influence on this person to want to give you information is far and away greater than it is on the state side or the Miranda rights attached. The other benefit that we had too was while I'm doing my interview or interrogation in a bathroom at three o'clock in the morning, the team that I'm with is searching their house that this person lives in. So as an example, this guy is telling me he's, his name isn't DJ. He's saying it's Chris. I'm like, really? I go, well, I have a picture from a targeting package. It says your name is, you know, DJ. Oh, that's not me. That's not me. Okay. I'd get a knock on the door and it'd be one of my teammates and they'd find a passport. And there's a picture, same exact picture. And it says DJ, you know? So there's a lot of other things that are going on simultaneously that interact that you don't necessarily have the advantage of uh, on a stateside level, you know, the search warrant and things like that. So, you know, if you have an arrest warrant, it's an arrest warrant. You take this person. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a search warrant. And it certainly doesn't mean that you could turn the whole house upside down to find incriminating evidence against this person. So that's the beauty of being in Iraq, if you could call it that. I wouldn't call it beautiful, but the advantage that you have psychologically in terms of interview and interrogation versus on the state side. 
let's talk about Iraq for a little while because I feel in reading your book that your first trip, I call them your first trip and your second trip, uh, were very different from each other. Team members, interpreters, people that you worked for in the military were very different. Uh, and I think that this almost set you back in the first trip because not only are you getting used to the shock of being in another country doing what you did in the United States for so long, but you also have a lot of different things working against you over there. So if we can talk about your first trip as compared to your second trip and kind of just explain, you know, what the differences were and how you saw it progressively get better. Well, the, there was two iterations. So I spent a total of 15 months in Iraq, uh, with the exception of October. I came home for uh, two and a half weeks and then I, and then I went back. But um, the leadership we had for the team, uh, speaking of the Phoenix team, was horrible. Um, the guy that was running the team was a retired uh, sergeant major from the Special Forces community. Actually, the majority composition of the of the Phoenix team was uh, retired Special Forces people, Green Berets, uh, SEAL people, um, and some EOD personnel and some other intel people as well. Um, but the leadership and the guy's communication skills were so bad that basically they didn't want anything to do with this. In fact, I'll give you an example, uh, and it's actually in the book. Uh, we had a meeting with the uh, headquarters at Brigade, and, you know, we're trying to sell the team, so to speak. So I was actually accompanying this uh, gentleman to this meeting, and um, he's trying to sell us and say all the things that we can do, and we can we can uh, process evidence, and we can interview and interrogate prisoners. And, oh, and by the way, you know, one of the things that the whole team is capable of, we, we all double as shooters. Well, you know, if you're a JAG officer, which is a judge advocate group, his job is to advise on risk and, and threat assessments to the colonel. And again, going back to what I said earlier in this conversation, the colonel has his, his sights set on getting his first star, getting promoted to general. And to accomplish that, he's got to be in a combat zone, number one. And he also has to get back what they call favorable human terrain team reports, which is basically when the PSYOPs people go out and they get a pulse and they do a survey of the area of operation that this colonel is operating in. Well, now going back to this meeting, the JAG hears this, that, oh, we're just a bunch of cowboys and that's all we we're here to do is shoot Iraqi people. Um, that was like the last time we spoke uh, with the JAG officers for about 30 days, 45 days. And hence the team sat around doing nothing. Fast forward the second iteration, we get a, another retired uh, sergeant major, major from the Special Forces community, and he was amazing. Uh, he had great communication skills. Some of the some of the uh, original team members that came in, they were gone. They were a bunch of bumps on the log too, and they were sour. And there, there was there's a lot of things that they did to really, really, really hurt the team uh, in, in terms of professionalism. But you know, you, it's like one bad guy from one one. Uh, of a team paints the whole team with a bad brush. And that's exactly what was happening. New blood came in. I stayed uh, a couple other people had stayed. And uh, this gentleman um, has great communication skills. And he says, we want to look at this problem as if it is a criminal enterprise. So we initially got there with the thought that we were going to do what they call post blast assessment, PBA. An ID would go off. We would go out there process the evidence, take pictures of the scene, interview potential witnesses if there were any, 
And it shifted from that to, no, let's do some direct target actioning. Let's find a bad guy. And I'm not going to get into the technicalities and the capabilities of that. But if you, if you can imagine like a movie, like, I don't know, like Patriot games with uh, Harrison Ford and, you know, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and heat signatures and people running around and things like that, you know, that, that might've been a level of sophistication that we had access to that and other things. And so now we want to do what they call left of boom. We want to stay in front of this. So we don't want the whole purpose of the program is to keep soldiers from being killed from IEDs, which the IEDs primarily were coming in and being shipped in from Iran. And if anybody wants to have that conversation with me, I'm happy to have that as well, because I have the photo documentation of the actual Iranian EFPs and the actual munitions that they sent over in Iran, you know, in Iranian Arabic writing or Persian writing, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and I also had the uh, the testimony of the people that were rounded up cell members from these cells that they were being financed and supplied from Iran. So when that team took hold, the one fellow that really, really made the team uh, click on all eight cylinders was this gentleman by the name of Matt Pacino. Uh, Matt Pacino was uh, a special forces operator, uh, an 18 Fox. Uh, so his whole uh, basis for him being there was to be an Intel analyst. And he developed our targeting packages in conjunction with the actual units that we supported with the actual green suit army. And the team took on a whole different dynamic. We went from nobody wanted to talk to us to we made relationships with multiple units, but one one unit in particular, um, 122 TSC, which stands for Tactical Strike Team from the 4th ID, and they wouldn't go out and action a target without us. That's, that's how strong the relationship was. That's how much level of trust and confidence we had in each other. And it was a really amazing, amazing experience. Well, when you first get over there in the first iteration, like you're talking about, so other than personnel on the ground, what's the difference? What is it that sparks these guys to look at you and go, okay, I guess these guys know what they're doing because I mean, the way you put it in the, in the book for a long time on the first iteration, you guys are kind of being joked about, uh, pushed around by captains that are walking around the base that you're at. There's so much stuff going on where no one is taking you guys seriously, yet they bring you out on, you know, just crazy assignments or stuff that is not going to end up anywhere. What was it that changed everything over? Well, I think there, there was a couple of things. Um, my friend Matt certainly was a big part of it. The new, the new team lead that came in, um, he was a big part of it when we shifted from trying to do a, a, a post-examination or a forensic examination of an IED. Now, I have to remember that the time frame that I'm there, I got there in February 2008. So there was an IED event pretty much every day, every other day, certainly. Uh, within our area of operation, depending on where you were, there might have been multiple IED events uh, every day, depending on where other people were operating. But we were just south of uh, the, uh, the green zone, in in and um, in and around the fringes of Baghdad proper, so we were busy. But to answer answer your question, there was an EOD element that was on the base, and that was their job. And they felt like, well, we were infringing on their turf. Kind of sounds familiar, like back in the states, where like, hey, wait a minute, what are you? This is my job. What are you? What are you doing? I do this. Nobody does this better than me. And actually, that wasn't true at all. But that's what they believed. And so again how I had these battles with the FBI where they're going to assert primacy, the, the organic EOD or explosive ordnance disposal unit that's a, 
part of the fourth ID assigned to this particular base that I'm on, they assert primacy too. So we would go out there and, and on a scene and we would just watch and they would either do a, what we call a blow and go, which is they hit it with a water charge or they, you know, take the jerve out there, which is like a remote robot type of vehicle. And they would, you know, uh, set a, set a charge and blow it up. So now there's nothing to look at. The whole scene is compromised. So if it was an intact, unexploded uh, IED, you know, we had a starting point, but that was just the beginning of our problems. They didn't want us to touch that. And in the end, they would take it and put it on a special vehicle and transfer it to a, a, a demolition site and blow it up anyway. So I've said all that to say this, when the second iteration came in, he said, the, the team lead said, why fight this battle? Why not look at this and go in a different direction? We could still be effective here and change this whole thing. When that happened, that's when I started doing interrogations. That's when I started rolling out on these missions every day, sometimes more than once a day. It would just depend on, on, on if a target presented itself. The flip side to that was the team was so effective. And I'm going to be clear about this. The team, this is not the Chris Strom show and Chris solved all the problems. And, it, you know, I want to be clear. Matt Pacino was the intelligence officer. We had um, EOD people from, from the SEAL community. We had Green Berets that were technical exploitation officers that could basically take a computer and know everything there is to know about that computer. And I'll let your imagination wander with that. So all these people working together, if you added up all the time, it's probably close to, you know, 150 years worth of experience. Now, if you have an 18 to 22-year-old soldier whose life experience is, you know, six or eight weeks of basic training, another eight or 10 weeks of, of uh, maybe an interrogation school or something like that. And now he's 21 years of age and he's talking to a 40 year old Arab male at three o'clock in the morning in his, in his pajamas, you know, he's going to laugh at this person because he's not afraid. You know, he's, there's no, there's no intimidation factor. And I'm not saying this to say that I'm the scariest person in the world, but the skill set level of somebody that went to an eight, eight week school and the skill set level of anybody with 20 years experience in anything is going to be worlds apart from, from a 19 or 20-year-old soldier. And once they we started proving that that was true, the team took on a different dynamic. The units that we supported, if you can imagine this too, and, and, I, and it's probably not hard since you spent eight years in the, in the Army, imagine if you're a soldier and your job is going to be route clearance, which is the most insane deadly job of any army uh, team rolling down a highway trying to find an IED you know in a, in an animal in a car in a shopping cart or whatever it might be that same army unit now is working together with us we're supporting them and going out and they're taking down tier 1 and tier 2 targets so the way that they felt about themselves about how they were making a difference and how they were changing the dynamics on the battlefields and the reduction of the IEDs that were killing their friends. You have to remember, a lot of these people that we were there on this team had already had two or three rotations in Iraq. So they've already lost people. They know what it's like, you know, that, that, that traumatic experience. They're coming back on the base and they're like walking around in, in the dining facility and they're like, the whole base knows that they just took down a tier one or a tier two target. They know. It's almost like when you make a big gun collar or a heavy collar, we call it, in the NYPD, when you come back to the precinct, everybody knows, you know, the only difference is instead of going out 
and bending an elbow with an adult beverage, you know, you're you're in the you're in the chow hall talking to your friends about, yeah, we got, you know, number two in the, you know, in the in the deck of cards. And it's pretty amazing. And to watch that happen and and see not only our relationship change with them, but to see how they viewed themselves, the soldiers I'm talking about that we supported, and how other soldiers viewed them. It's an amazing experience. It's just truly amazing. Well, in talking about that, I want people to understand in this book, I want them to understand what kind of monsters that you were dealing with. And there's a little passage that I want to read out of your book. It says, looking at those innocent laughing children, I wondered how their parents could, without guilt, suit them up and use them as suicide bombers, all in the name of Allah. It affronted the sensibilities of any civilized person. And I want people to understand that, yes, you dealt with criminals for 20 years back in the United States, 22 years, including Plano. You go over there. This is a different form of evil. It's a different form than I I have ever dealt with, and I'm sure it had was the same for you before you went over there. It's a different level. I want to know, first off, how you deal with these people, how you get through it, and then what's the aftermath of it? I think you have to kind of detach yourself from it, DJ. I think what ends up happening is um, – you can't get too emotionally invested in. I mean, listen, I'm a parent, you're a parent. So, uh, and whether you're a parent or not really is irrelevant. Everybody uh, it looks at children similarly, if you're any kind of a human being and you have compassion, but you just try to, you know, rationalize in your mind, how could somebody do that? But then you look at what's going on over there and the, the level of hatred and the level of indoctrination in the madrasas and in the mosques about, you know, how the, 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 uh, uh, Americans are the infidels and the hatred that is ginned up, uh, especially with the teenage groups uh, of uh, young uh, Iraqi males. It's, it's, it's incredible. But it's kind of like almost like, like I said, it's almost like the 9-11 thing. You're so focused on what you have to do that when you're in the moment of doing it, that stuff kind of like falls away. But then, as you say, when you're when you're sitting back, you know, and you're, you know, you're having downtime or you're you're in your room and you're, you're reading a book or maybe listening to some music or something like that. You start to think about it and you say, wow, it, it like, it's, it's really, really hard to imagine. I can't, I can't, I mean, I just can't even imagine it. Like your mind almost like stops there because it is child abuse at, at the highest level. When you see people strap bombs to their kids, the question that I had was really, kind of just setting up the aftermath of it because like you said when you're sitting around thinking about it but i'm talking about a more permanent level um i'm sure those images still haunt you to this day of stuff that you have seen over there it's it's almost impossible when you see things like that though and then you talk to your family back home um how do you relay what's going on? Because it's, I, I, I tell a lot of people like within law enforcement, I told my family, unless you can see it, you really don't understand it. So how do you explain that? How do you tell your wife? How do you tell your kids what you're doing and the important goal that you're trying to achieve over there? Well, I really didn't, to be honest with you, DJ, I didn't tell them too much. Um, my wife's, you know, probably like your wife, she's a cop's wife. You know, they're very smart. 
Um, they know when you want to talk about certain things and they know when you don't want to talk about certain things. Um, the book was great for me in terms of getting it out and putting it on paper. And, and just so your audience knows, um, I was writing before I even got deployed. I just said, I'm just going to start writing all this stuff down because especially once I got into Iraq, the, the amount of hours that I spent um, out on the X, out on the battlefield, back in the, in the shop, you know, writing reports, processing evidence, you know, was staggering, um, not just for me, the, the whole team. I'm, I'm just being realistic about it. Um, but I really didn't talk about it. Like, um, and then there were moments where like, you know, permanent change. Like my wife, when I first came home, my kids would do something or maybe they, they got into trouble or whatever. And I would like cock my head and I would look at them. My wife would go like, these aren't Iraqi children and you're not in Iraq and you're not interrogating my kids. Now stop it. Cause I would look at them and say, you know, really? And my, I didn't realize I was doing it, but I was doing it. Um, and even now, and even before, before I went to Iraq, and I'm sure this is, this will be with you. You'll 20 years from now, you'll be sitting in a restaurant. And I, I always take a certain position at the table in a restaurant because I want to feel the view. I want to know who's coming in and who's coming out. Right. So before I went to Iraq and I was still active within the NYPD, my kids would like, it was like a game. They would take the seat. They knew the seat that they couldn't take, but they would take it. And then my wife, you know, being Italian, she would look at them and go, you know, you can't sit there. That's your father's seat. You can't sit there. You have to move. And they would move and they would laugh and they know, you know what I mean? But that has, that stuff uh, still continues to this day. That doesn't change. Um, I, I look at people, I look at things and I, part of the problem, and, and I don't know if this is a problem that you have, and I'm not suggesting that you do have, but it's really hard to believe people sometimes. Like you want to <laughs> not like size them up psychologically. You wait don't wait say, a minute. Let me see if I get this right. You just said you don't know. I think that's every cop or everybody that's been in law enforcement. You don't believe anybody. Right, exactly. Right, right. It's, but but you want to give people the benefit of the doubt and you want to dismiss the voice that's in your head and what you know and what you're observing. And maybe you've developed a psychological snapshot of this person and only to be proven right, like nine times out of 10, maybe even more if it's possible. And but then you're like, nah, he's a nice guy, you know, and then you find out later he's a son of a gun. You know what I mean? He's, you know, there was an intangible thing that you found out later on, maybe going on in this person's personal life, or you read about him later on in the paper that he got indicted on something like, I knew that guy was a screwball or whatever, you know, like, and so that part had existed before I went to Iraq. It got worse when I came home because I really look at people all the time, especially in an airport. I'm constantly looking at people in an airport. I, I, I think that it's a very good point that you bring up about not trusting people and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But tell me if you agree with this. When you find out later on that your initial thoughts were right, don't you needle yourself hard for that, for not following that instinct? I do. I beat myself up because it's like you're, you're, you've taken all this time and all this experience and honing this skill and interrogation is a skill. It's it's a learned skill, and it's certainly a perishable skill. Meaning, you know, if you don't do it with any frequency, and you go back into the box with somebody, you're. I, I'm telling you right now, if I had to go in the box, I don't care if it was in Dallas or or in the NYPD, and had to do what I had done at that level over in Iraq, I would be rusty, 
and I probably wouldn't be that good at it. It would probably take a little while, almost like, you know, playing a sport, getting back acclimated into it and getting, you know, physically fit and getting mentally fit to get back in that room and get into that mindset. But I don't think it ever completely leaves you, but it definitely kind of tamps down a little bit once once you once you get out of it. But yes, I, I'm my my own worst critic. When I say I knew that guy was a son of a bitch, and, I, and then I turn around, I, you know, take it easy, Chris. You know, you're at a party, you're at a wedding or whatever, and then you find out later he's cheating on his wife or she's cheating on her husband or the kids are into all kinds of madness and they're they're bad students or they got in trouble with the law or whatever. You're like, I knew there was something going on. And then you just kind of like become hypercritical of yourself. So, The next part that I want to talk to you about, and it, it's before we kind of get into the final phase of this. And I told you when we talked about your family in the beginning that I wanted to get to it a little later. So you do this first iteration in the Middle East and you come home and you really don't have much trouble going over there. Um, you kind of had a plan in place, how to tell the kids, when to tell the kids, when you were going to leave, when you were going to talk, all those things. You see all these things over there. You come home and then you go back. But you mentioned something that was a little strange to me in the book because I thought it was interesting that you pointed this out. You said the inevitable question came from your son, why do you have to go back? So what, what really struck me in that was you knew that there was something there right off the bat. You knew that that question was coming. You knew how you felt about when your dad wasn't around as a kid and things. Did that ever play into your consideration of it? Or was it you knew what you had to do, it's a righteous mission to do it, and you believe that the ends justify the means? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, the separation from the team, I couldn't wait to get back to the team. There's a whole, and I know you read the book, there's a whole other issue uh, with, with contracts and things like that, that really, um, in the end, you know, worked itself out. But, um, my wife was very supportive in, in terms of saying, you know, I, taking the guilt off of that question from me and basically saying, you know, daddy has to go back, you know, he's needed over there, you know, or his teammates are over there. And I don't think, you know, an eight year old or a nine year old really understands that, that type of commitment and bond. I mean, I know you were a soldier, so you understand it, but an eight-year-old, I think they have a hard time separating themselves saying, but I'm your son or I'm your child. Like, how could you love anyone more than me? And, and so that's a great question. Um, but I think my wife, you know, if, if it wasn't for my wife, it would have been way, way worse because my wife would just like change the subject and say, hey, we're going to go to we're going to go to Walmart or we're going to go do something like that, you know, to kind of like, you know, as, as an escape route, uh, an off ramp from that question. Um, but it, certainly if I didn't have that kind of support, uh, from my wife and her saying, you know, daddy has to go back, you know, his friends are there, they need him or whatever. Um, I would have been, you know, I would have been crushed emotionally. I think. Do you think you're as far as you are in your career and in your life without that wife? Because you mentioned it in the book, that's your second wife. She had been married before, but you guys just kind of gelled like peanut butter and jelly. Um, are you as far as you are in life? Uh, without her? No, without question. No, no, because you know, the funny, the funny thing is like with the Marine Corps, I wanted to, you know, prove something to myself and, and that kind of opened my eyes to the realization. If you want it, like I said, you know, work hard, you can achieve things. When I married my wife, my wife was, you know, didn't need me, was self-supportive, had her own house, had a great job. And, you know, so I wanted to be better. 
And but the other things that played in my mind was I know what it felt like to be uh, in that situation of a home where, you know, there's one parent with, with just the mom and some other other uh, emotional challenges. And I said, that's never going to happen. And that's the conversation that we still have to this day. And I'm amazed at my kids. And I'm very like most parents. I'm amazed at my kids and I'm very, very proud of my kids. And um, we never uh, say goodbye without saying we love each other. I kiss my son in public on this on his forehead and I hug him in public. And my, my daughter, of course, you know, that that's a given to the point of where like, they're like, OK, dad, you know what I mean? Like, you know, does it, do you really have to do this? You know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I would not have gotten this far without my wife. There's no there's no question about it. If you don't mind, can we talk about uh, talking about the family, talk about Iraq and everything like that? I want to talk about specifics of your missions. And I want to kind of get an explanation from you because I feel like I kind of need it after the book. So you do these missions where you're really being used and you said like five operations a week and you start rolling into this cell where you're moving up the chain quickly. You're grabbing all these guys, friends, associates, all that. Um, and you know, you named him Mr. Oscar, Mr. Lover, Madam Death, Mr. Bad Guy. You had all these people that are kind of pointing up this chain. Once again, we go back to the Iran thing where some may or may not have been sneaking back and forth across the border, um, getting their weapons and, and things like that. The interesting part of this whole thing to me, so you're reading through this, through all these chapters, and you're moving up the chain, and then when you get to the end, they kind of blow you off, the higher-ups. And you've gone so far, made so much progress, ID blaster down, all of these things. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your mission, what you're feeling as you're going through all these different missions and moving up the chains, rolling all these guys up. And then you get to the end, and it's time for payoff. And again, you get kicked in the nuts. Well, well as you say, we were moving through the uh, the, the chain. We, um, you know, thanks thanks to Matt uh, Pacino, um, just an amazing big picture guy. And to give some context about Matt, most people that develop a targeting package never leave the base, um, with, with rare exception. So now. That wasn't how Matt was. Matt was like, you know, he's emotionally invested into this thing. We're, we're all emotionally invested into this. But Matt, Matt more so than most because he developed the targeting package uh, along with the with our, our friends in the Army. So he has a, uh, an emotional invested interest in, in seeing this through. And so he would come out on the target and, um, you know, we would find, you know, find, you know, whoever it was in this particular cell and, you um, because Matt was so intimately involved with this with this case, he knew things that maybe wasn't reflected or maybe I didn't fully digest in the targeting package and would either feed me questions or would work a tandem with me um, uh, uh, with the interpreter. So I've said all that to, to, to say moving through the cell and breaking down the cell. One of the things that we found as a consequence of this was large amounts of, uh, of U.S. currency, hundred dollar bills uncirculated, brand new. Uh, they still smelled, you know, like they were right out of the box uh, in serial number order. And as we're wrapping up these cell members, this is also what we're finding. And I think I shared with you one of the pictures um, of a table full of money. And that was, again, a, a very frequent occurrence. When you find that money, you know, hypothetically, DJ is a, is a commanding officer 
uh, in Battle Space A and, and Chris is a commanding officer in Battle Space B. Well, the commanding officer, DJ, gets serial numbers 1 through 10. Chris is going to get 11 through 20. So the money is trackable and traceable. Now, did it come from the colonel and his lieutenant colonels and his majors that were doing what they call public works projects and just spreading money around? Did it come from the CIA or did it come from the FBI? Um, there's a lot I could say, and there's a lot I'm not going to say, but I can tell you one thing. They didn't steal the money. Somebody gave it to them. So depending on who gave it to them, and getting back to your question about moving up the cell and getting shut down, um, that's really, at, again, on the career path, we're, we're on our way. We could see the stars just on the edge of the horizon. We're almost there. Uh, that's why I believe we got shut down. Um, from the Army's uh, insistence of it, and also from the other federal agencies that were over there running around throwing money at a problem that never solved anything. Because they had convinced themselves that, like the pillow talk that 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 uh, John has with a prostitute, yeah, she was doing it for the money for all these other people, but she actually loves me. They had convinced themselves that these Iraqi demons actually loved them. Yeah, the other guy that came in, the other army commander, he didn't have as good a, a situational awareness or judgment of character. Mine is clearly way better than anyone else's that came before me. But when you start exposing this, and you have to remember this also, DJ, but, and for the benefit of your audience, my reports are getting read back in Washington, D.C. This is not something that I think this is something that I know. And it's part of the INSUM, the Intelligence Summary Report for the President's Daily Briefing. So not that the President is reading this, of course, but people are reading this and they're saying, who is this Phoenix team? And why are they finding all this money? And by the way, why are they rounding up tier one targets? Don't we have a special forces community out there? Why aren't they rounding up these, these targets? So you have army units that we're supporting, and but I'm doing all the evidence processing and collection, whether it was forensic bomb material, documents, and certainly money. It got to the point, DJ, that we collected so much money, I wouldn't even count the money anymore. I would just put it in a bag and give it to the lieutenant that was out on the scene. I'm saying, I don't know how much is in here, and I really don't care. I go, this is your responsibility. Because the other problem was, if I turned in this money, and now, you, you know, you, I've been up 24 hours straight now, okay? The report has to get done first because I have to be mentally focused and sharp about, I talked to three guys, we rounded up three guys, who's subject number one, who's number two, and who's number three, and what did each one of these say? and get that done first. So the processing of the evidence, I'm bleary-eyed, and that's at the end. And I want you to imagine, because I'm sure you don't, being from the law enforcement community and also from the military community, that I miscounted one $100 bill, that I'm off. And now somebody opens up this bag and they count this money and they say, these people from the Phoenix team, they're stealing money. Can you imagine that? They're coming over here and stealing money. $100 bills that are in serial number order. They took one from the middle of the stack. I mean, that's how insane it was. And, and, and so I made that a long story, but people have to understand the things that you see in movies or things that other books, even in a, in, a, in a fictional book, that are written about people covering their asses to save their political and, and military and police careers is very real. It's very, very real. Well, you were accused of stealing a rug. I know that for sure over there. <laughs> I 
was accused of a lot of things. I was accused of a lot of things. <laughs> Let's talk about your interpreters. Uh, does your job get done as good if you don't have Muad? No, not at all. Muad's great. Muad was uh, so switched on. Uh, and what was good was he was, he was like uncorrupted. He had not been, he had never done any of this before. I, I, I believe he was in the, uh, in the Navy. And so he was never used as a linguist in any capacity, although he was uh, of Syrian descent and, and, and spoke and, and wrote Arabic perfectly. Um, he probably had a Nebraska accent because that's where he really was from, even though he, he spoke Arabic, which I probably wouldn't catch. But, you know, somebody like here in America, depending on where you are geographically, they probably would catch it. But his level of enthusiasm, his his work ethic, um, his ability to mirror me out in, in in, in all the whole spectrum of emotion, intensity, and inflection was just amazing. And he was super smart, super, super smart. And one of the things that he didn't do, uh, which is very tempting for interpreters, uh, and I don't know if you've had this experience in, in, a, in, an Arab, in an Arab world or even stateside, is that they tend to put themselves in as the investigator or the actual interrogator. So they'll start doing a whole series of questions and you're standing there going like, what, what did you, I didn't say a word. What is it that you're saying to this person? So we didn't have that disharmony. We were working in sync with each other. Um, he didn't come out of character. And when I say that, we always assume that these people could speak English. So we didn't have like a sidebar conversation in front of a detainee and, and say, oh, what do you think about this? Or, do you think I should ask? We always assume that they could speak English. And more times than not, they could speak English, but they just, you know, pretended that they couldn't. So he was great about that as well. So, but um, yeah, hats off to him. He was, I, I he, like my team in the intelligence division, I would be nowhere without him. He was great. I want to contrast that and talk about your first interpreter. <laughs> yeah, he was horrible. He was, he was horrible. Um, I would say certain things that would maybe had like a New York flair to them. And he would say, I cannot say that. And he would say that in English in front of the bad guy. So if he spoke English, he knew right away that we weren't in sync and we weren't working as a team. Uh, the other problem with him too is, is that uh, he was lazy. So he would disappear. So it, in, the, in, the way, in the way it worked for us when we were out on the target, I asked the questions and Mawad would write down what the person said, whether it was in some shorthand form or if it was in Arabic or whatever, whatever made him comfortable. And then I would get his notes. And most of it I had from memory, but I just need like some, you know, the down and dirty and the bullet points of what this person said. If it was a specific question related to his involvement with the cell, his travels, family members, things like that. This guy didn't even take notes. So now not only is he not taking notes, but he's disappearing. So we'd get back to the base after a mission and his name, I'm not going to say his name, but I'd say, you know, where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Nobody knew where Waldo would go. He would just like disappear. And so now it's all on me from memory because I don't have notes because I'm not going to do this and break that level of concentration and eye contact and intensity, which I know, you know, from a law enforcement community is key, especially if you're drilling down on somebody and you're trying to break them, you know, psychologically, you're not going to be like, oh, give me one second. Let me just write down because you're telegraphing to this guy. You're weak and you're incompetent and all host of other things. So Mawad would stand over my shoulder 
and he would just write everything, you know, write, write everything down or whatever he felt was necessary. Gave me his notes. I typed up the interrogation report, and then we're off to off on another mission the next day or next next ten hours. To kind of wrap up your your time in Iraq and and moving forward to today, with the Iraqi National Police and and all the things that you saw with them, with um, releasing prisoners of value, with political corruption that was going on, because you mentioned it numerous times in the book. If someone was a friend of a friend of a sheikh, that they were going to be released, that they almost, like you said, here back in America, they don't have to worry about bond. They know that it's only going to be 24 to 48 hours. They'll be released. They'll be back at it. Are we ever going to be able to fix uh, the problem of working with these other countries. I guess that would be the best way to say it, to actually go over there for the mission, do what the mission was set out to be, and get that mission accomplished. I, I say the short answer is no, and I'll tell you why I say no. Um, you're talking about two different cultures, and um, they're very, very different. I've spent the last five years over in the UAE, Arab, Arab, Arab people, Beautiful people, amazing people, super intelligent people. Um, they've embraced the Western culture. They're they're, um, they're still traditional people, the uh, the uh, the uh, native Emirati people, but they but they like nice things. They like nice homes. They like uh, clean clean water, and, and the cities are immaculate, and highways are immaculate. They have zero tolerance for crime. Um, in Iraq, it's very tribal. Still, it's tribal in, in the Emiratis. Uh, in the Emirati culture and the Arab culture there as well. But there is, there's, there's real laws that are abided by in Iraq, you know, you know, again, a little history lesson for people that may or may not be aware of this and it's relevant. Saddam was a bad guy. Everybody agrees. He was a bad guy. We found out later that there were no weapons of mass destruction. I don't want to make this political, but in terms of Sunni Arabs and Shiite Arabs, Sunni nations, and again, the, the Emiratis are Sunni, and, and many, and Iraq was a Sunni nation before we deposed Saddam and, and eventually he was executed. We brought in a Shiite leader, this guy Al, Al uh, Maliki, and he was a he was a criminal then, and he was a criminal when he came back, and they made him the president, and he brought back all his criminal friends. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, stealing, corruption, that they don't find that a problem. Although I think we seem be having our fair share of problems here in the states now too. People might question whether or not we have an actual stable government, but I think that's the main problem. I don't think it's that they don't want nice things. I mean, again, a lot of the people that we were rounding up that that were terror terror cells were formerly college educated and degreed people. They were engineers, they were doctors, they were lawyers. So whether they were doing it for money, whether they were idealistic about it, whether it was a religious uh, caliphate that they felt compelled. To, to do, you know, who's to say all these different things are competing entities. But in terms of winning the hearts and minds, this this one single incident in Afghanistan and and previous with Iraq has proven to the to the Arab world that we are not the Americans. We are not people of our word. We do not commit to what we say we're going to do. Whether you think um, we should have stayed in Iraq or shouldn't have stayed in Iraq or we shouldn't should have stayed in Afghanistan. That's not what I'm here to debate. But we don't follow through on our word anymore in terms of foreign policy. 
And they know that. And they're basically just looking at the horizon saying, who's the next guy or girl that's coming in to be the president of the United States? And that's what they set their eyes on. Because when, when I was in during the Bush administration and then later with the Obama, they changed what they call the status of forces agreement. Well, once that happened, that, that basically meant that they wanted to impose a traditional Western type of law enforcement across the board and impose the same standard in the military. So now you actually needed a search warrant. They were reading these people, Miranda, out on the target location. I mean, it was just a level of insanity where they're like, are we here to win or are we just here to you know, play stupid games? That's really how dumb it became. And so the, the war just like ground to a halt. It just basically, you know, operationally, it just ground, it ground to a halt. You know, and, and they knew that. And they knew they were going to wait President Obama out and see the change in the dynamic. And they they won. They won. They won uh, in, a, in a historic way, in a financial way, because when we left, you know, again, we were throwing money at a problem. You know, we started out with a good intent, whether the information was good or bad or whatever. This nation building never seems to work out if you're imposing it uh, from a Western from a Western perspective. It doesn't seem to translate into an Arab culture. That's my opinion, but that's been proven throughout history as well. Does that ever work? The Miranda, the justice system, all those things being brought over there, because we always talk about bringing a Western democracy. Does that ever work? Do you ever see that working or is there ever a way to make that work? I don't think so. I Well, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I'm very familiar and have many friends from Jordan. Again, another very westernized, uh, it's, it's still a, a Muslim state and, and, uh, and, and they follow Islam, but they are um, very westernized. They're very smart, very super educated people. They love uh, people from America. I mean, we have a great, great relationship with them. Um, and that is, is as close between the Emiratis and the UAE and, and the Jordanians. That's as close to a very close relationship from a Western perspective as you can possibly have, except with the, with the exception of the religion. Other than that, and maybe a language, every, everybody seems to get along fine. But when you're trying to impose a Western culture on somebody, especially from a war perspective, I don't think that works. I don't think that's ever worked. I don't think the Germans ever wanted to be like Americans, and I don't think the Americans ever wanted to be like Germans. And we're both from a Western culture. I mean, that's just how it is. Are we similar in a lot of ways? Absolutely. We're very similar in a lot of ways, but we're different in a lot of ways too. So, and I think that's what's going on in the Arab world. I think the Arab world, they they have things the way they like, and it, it, it's the way they know for, for centuries. And by trying to impose that in a war zone with a, with a mentality and throwing money at a problem, I don't think that will ever change. That's just me. So what was it to wrap this whole thing up. What was it that made you realize that it's time to step away? Cause you talk about it a little in the book, but they ask you to sign on for another six months and you step away. What was it that kept you from signing up and then kept you away long-term? You know, it was a couple of factors. One, um, what I stated before the, the status of forces agreement, um, it made it very difficult to operate. We weren't doing, we really weren't doing that many missions anymore. It really had ground to a halt. The team that we were supporting, uh, that we had a great relationship, the 122 TST, which was um, 
run by this amazing guy, Sergeant Dave Peluso. I still talk to him every week uh, and we exchange pictures and I've been to his retirement party and, and visited with his family and things. When they left and now we're trying to re re-engage this whole uh, thing that is that the Phoenix team does with, with different units. Oh, and by they shifted us from one base where we had, you know, fidelity of what was going on. And we had, you know, all the, all the, uh, the, the situational awareness of the environment. Now they're shifting us to a totally different area. We don't know the area of operation. We certainly don't know the soldiers. And now we're trying to build this relationship all over again. And the missions have ground to a halt. So it's almost like, you know, so that was part of it. The other part was I had already been gone for 15 months. Uh, I missed my kids. I missed my wife. And I was thinking to myself, how many more missions can I go on? Am I pushing my luck with this too? Um, I wasn't morbid. I didn't have a fatal uh, complex about, you know, I was, you know, secure in my faith with God that whatever was going to happen was going to happen, regardless of how much longer I stayed. But I did miss my family. But the silliness with the Army was really starting to grate on me because they didn't want to win. They just wanted, and I'm not, this is again, when I say the Army, I'm not talking about the soldiers that we work with hand in hand. I'm talking about these people again with these big ideas and big career aspirations that really couldn't care less about the soldier that's actually out there, you know, doing the mission. Those people I love. So that the politics and who knew there would be politics in the military, you know, that really wore on me too. So I said, you know what, it's time to come home. It's, 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 I, I've had enough. I just really can't. And it's funny because I actually have a video of us standing in a circle drinking Jameson out of a, of a, a big ram's horn and just passing it around and everybody giving their five second snapshot of like, what are you grateful for? We know, you know, and you know, what do you, what do you have to say? And you know, like that, like as a closing, closing out uh, ceremony. So it was actually, I, I look at that every now and then and I'm like, yeah, it was, it was time to go. It was definitely time to go. Well, I want to read something real quick, and this is the last thing I'm going to read from the book, but I, I, I it really struck me in here because I don't think a lot of people think about it. Um, and it's, it's what you talk about, about sacrifice. And you say to most people in civilian life, sacrifice was just a word that meant minor inconvenience. The type of sacrifice these soldiers demonstrated was unfathomable. The expectation was you'd put it behind you and move on with the mission. Whether the young soldier could move on and put it behind him, I will probably never know. I only know how sad it made me feel at that moment, and I wasn't the one who'd lost my best friend. And this comes from when you're talking about uh, a, a funeral and a memorial that you guys are attending. In all your service, NYPD, Plano, working with the Phoenix Group, you've learned what sacrifice is. How do we push that forward to people that don't understand it? Because I think that's where we're at an impasse in this world today. And especially like we've talked about over and over and over again, the soldiers that are on the ground protecting that freedom, the law enforcement and the first responders that are keeping you safe back home are overlooked over and over again. How do we let people know about that sacrifice and to understand that sacrifice. Well, I think this is a great platform to talk about and share stories like that. So, you know, if I didn't say in the beginning, I'm saying it now, DJ, thank you very much for having me on the show. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you asking that question because that question and that passage has meaning to you because 
you're a soldier and so and law enforcement. So you've obviously lost people on, on both sides of, of, of that um, and, and what kind of an impact that has on you. I think it's a, it's a personal experience, but I think when you're part of something like a military unit or when you're part of a police department and you may or may not even be best friends, you might not even like this person. It's, it's what actually happened to this person that really affects you. Um, I don't want to be melodramatic about it. Uh, everybody, I'm sure at some point in time, if they haven't already experienced going to a funeral, some people die because they're old age and, you know, and we, we get that and we're sad. Some people die in a car accident and they're young high school kids getting ready to, you know, go to the prom or, or whatever it is. And that's tragic too. But these are soldiers and these are police officers that volunteered. And I don't want to hear another word from these talking heads that say, well, they knew what they were signing up for. You know what? Just shut up. Just just sit down and be quiet. OK, just look at your trust fund earnings and be, and be quiet. Nobody gives a crap about what you're saying. The people that commit themselves to the military and the police department are the finest people on this earth. And that's how they should be viewed at. Not just another soldier was killed in action. And now we're going to talk about the weather. You know what I mean? It's more than that. It's And they all have meaning and they all are special people. And that's what I want impressed upon people. And I'm not saying it because people should look at me like, look at the sacrifice. This isn't about me. The book is dedicated to my friend, Matt Pacino. The book is not about me. It's about telling the story of other people and their sacrifices. Yes, I talk about myself and my experience, but the book really isn't about me. It's really to bring awareness to, to as you say, what 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 the value of all of this is. What What is it worth to do that, to put on a uniform and, and be that selfless? And th that is a, a true high calling and people should recognize that and they should go out of their way. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. See somebody online in, 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 a, in a coffee shop or whatever, and they're behind you and you're like, you just throw a $20 bill on the counter and say, take care of this guy. If, you know, if they're in uniform and you can identify them, sometimes they're not and say, can you just buy him his coffee and just walk out? Just do it. You don't have to be acknowledged for it. And people, that is enough for people to say, you know what? It is worth it. And I appreciate that. It doesn't happen often, but if you can do it and, you know, you'll feel good about it. And the person you did it for will be, will feel really good about it as well. Yeah, I I once again only speak from a law enforcement perspective for losing people because never lost anyone in the military. But in law enforcement perspective, you, you never really think about it, but it starts to add up over your career of 20 years, um, you know, all at once. And and what is so disheartening anymore, and I think it's why a lot of people are leaving, is because they put on their uniform every day and I'm not even talking about me. I'm talking about, like you said, the guys that, that are out on the streets every single day, they put on that uniform and protect people that they don't even know would never meet them in normal life, but they'll still willing to put their life before theirs in order to protect them and keep them safe. And I think that if we can get back to where people understand sacrifice um, I think we had it very much at the beginning of, of this 20-year war and things, but I think if we can get back to that point where people really understand law enforcement, first responders, 
military personnel, people that are really putting it on the line, I think that a lot can change for the United States. And I think you would agree with that. I, I do. I agree with that hundred percent. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's so, it's just so important. It can't be overstated. It, it's, um, so it's got to change. This mindset's got to change. Um, this, this negativity and, and bashing of, of law enforcement and, um, overlooking the, the sacrifice of people in the military. And I don't want to get off on a tangent. I want to end up on a good note, but you know, when you're sitting at a cocktail party with your pinky out talking about politics or talking about the war or, you know, you know, I, I, gee, I got a car and it's uh, it's 10 years old. You know, like, you know, your problems really are so minuscule in comparison in relative terms of the sacrifice that these, and I call them kids because of my age. They're not kids. They're men and women, you know, obviously. And I love them. Um, it's so minuscule. Your problems are, are nothing compared to the problems of these People and again, as you say, the people that have to go, they have to move forward after this. They're expected to move forward, um, and it takes its toll. It really does take its toll, and it, it it's it's got to it's it's got to be it's got to be fixed. It's got to be fixed. There's got to be a different dialogue. It has to be fixed. Well, let's end this by talking about where people can find you because uh, you're in a couple places. It took me a minute, but you responded right back. Where can people know more about this fantastic book? Where can they pick it up? Where can they learn more about you and just kind of where they can find you? Thanks. Thanks, DJ. Yeah, I'm on Facebook under uh, Christopher Strom. Um, I'm also on Facebook under uh, Brooklyn to Baghdad. Uh, social media is the same, um, you know, Brooklyn to Baghdad. Uh, I have Twitter, but I basically only post things that are in terms of publicity. Uh, I'm tempted many times to say certain things that, um, my kids would yell at me if I said, so I stay out of that, that sphere. I just post things that are related to the book. Um, certainly on Amazon, you can find the book. Um, recently it was number 82, uh, in the top 100 bestsellers. It's not there now, but it, it goes up and down. So I'm very uh, fortunate for that. Uh, Barnes and Noble. And obviously, um, if you want to order it, um, if you go to your local bookstore and it's not there, if you order it, they'll, they'll get it. My publisher is, uh, Chicago Review Press. Um, so yeah, you can find. And if people want me to come uh, and talk on shows like yours, or if they they want me to come and speak before an audience, whether it's law enforcement, corporate, military, uh, about my experience, about interview and interrogation, happy to oblige them. I would love to love to get out of my house. I'm sure my wife would love to see me get out of the house a little <laughs> bit more often. Too, so. Well, Chris, I, I can't tell you enough, man. This book is fantastic. And and everything that you talk about, there's some points that really hit home in there. And then there's some things that you don't even think about. And I, I want as many people as can to check this book out. It's Brooklyn to Baghdad, an NYPD intelligence cop fights terror in Iraq. And it is absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad you sent it to me. I'm so glad that uh, we got to get on here and talk about everything that happened on it. Uh, guys, if you want more of me, you can find me at the DTD underscore podcast. That's on Instagram. You can find me at the DTD podcast on Facebook, and you can find me on YouTube where all of these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. Guys, I think that's going to be it for this week. Chris, thanks for stopping by. Guys, that's going to be the show. That's Chris. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.